morning. Go ahead and make your way in. We'll pray and get started here. Good to see you all. I'm enjoying the sun so much I decided to wear a t-shirt because <laughs> I'm just <laughs> enjoying the weather. Uh, well, let's pray and we'll jump in. We're continuing in our studies in Genesis. And so we'll uh, dive in. Father, we do thank you for all you provide to us as a church. Lord, you have blessed us so richly. Lord, we um, do even just think of just how you have grown our church so quickly. Um, there's just a joy to see how when there was no church here uh, just a few years ago, now we have a church and now we have the regular rhythms of gathering to worship you, to study books like Genesis, to study different topics. So Lord, we do pray even this morning as we study Genesis, we continue this work. Would you be gracious to us? Lord, would you help us to understand these things more clearly? Lord, would you use these topics that we discussed today to shape and form our hearts both individually and as members of this church? Would you help us to think well of you, help us to understand you well, help us to read your word well, and Lord, that it would be ultimately glorifying to you in how we do these things, that we would be those who have great joy and great hope because of what we study this morning. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are continuing on um, in our study in Genesis, as I mentioned, and so this is like we've been looking at. There's no way we can hit every single topic within Genesis or hit the whole breadth of information here. It's a packed book. There is so much within Genesis, and even as we've already started to enter in, we recognize we could have spent many, many weeks on just the topic of creation, and so there's Lots of things for us to pull apart, and so in some senses we're entering in here, but there's much more that you could even dive into each of these topics we, we hit. So one of the things um, that we looked at was just kind of the overall structure and scope of Genesis, and one of the things that formulates the structure of Genesis is kind of these genealogies. As we look at Genesis, it is this kind of uh, story about the origins of the people of Israel. As they're sitting there in the desert, they're wondering, who are we? Where do we come from? And so God graciously gives this to them. He says, this is how you originated. This really is forming their worldview as they look at the world in front of them, following this God into this desert and obeying him. He's giving them this backstory. And so one of the things that you start to see is this heavy emphasis on family lines. Heavy emphasis on where they came from, even all the way back to the generations of creation. And you start to see the way that God is laying this out for them. But there's also kind of this, this, this major division, uh, as it were, between Genesis 1 to 11 and then the rest through the end of the book. And this really starts to show you like there is kind of a primeval history and a patriarchal history. And so there is kind of this picture within the first 11 chapters of how did everything get the way it was? How did things come to exist? How does God have his hand on it? What is his relationship with mankind? And why is it so broken? As you look at evil and sin and those things, you get a lot of questions answered from Scripture this way. And as you come to the next half of the book, all of a sudden it kind of moves into 
who are these people? What is this unique relationship that God has made with this people, a very specific people? And how did they come to be this chosen people sitting in the middle of the desert saying, God, what do you want us to do? How should we worship you? How should we live our lives? How should we obey you? And so there is, within this large section of Scripture that oftentimes is referred to as the Pentateuch, there is this thrust and this focus of God saying, I will come and dwell in your midst, I will dwell among you, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. And this is the relationship that we'll have through all of redemption, that I will have a people that I carry forward. And so one of the things that really helps us to see where did we come from is this picture of the structure. Um, and it's fr- framed largely around this phrase that we've used before, the generations of or the Toledot structure. So this is the Hebrew word uh, that kind of indicates this is some different section. And so this is almost like a zoom lens in narrative, um, in the narratives in like a, like a Hebrew text like this. And so it's using this to kind of zoom in and say, pay attention to this. This is a different chapter heading, so to speak. And so it is doing this work in and out of saying, this is something that I want you to focus on. This is another significant individual. So this picture is something that you can see very clearly. If you were a Hebrew reader, you'd see this. It would just hit you in the face. One of the unfortunate things is you read it in our English Bibles, and oftentimes they'll translate these words very differently. And so sometimes even in the NIV, they will give it um, different titles, and sometimes they'll just call it, this is the account of. And so one of the things you start to miss is, what is the connection here? What is going on? But really what the author is after is he's saying, I want you to see who this lineage is coming from, who God has selected and how he's carrying it forward. So there's some of these main headings, even though there's many other Toledot headings or generations of, and so God is kind of showing this, and so there would be all these, and you have these on your handout here. You start to see the generations of heaven and earth, the generations of Adam, the generations of Noah, the generations of the sons of Noah, the generations of Terah, Ishmael, Isaac, Esau, Jacob. So there's some major ones that it really pulls apart these stories a bit more. When we think of Adam, Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, and these will fit within these. And so there is a sense in which these stories get expounded a bit. But this becomes something that we need to listen to. And it is actually kind of difficult to know at times how to read Genesis because we've talked about this. It is a book that is fairly unfamiliar in its format. And so you come to it as an English reader, modern day reader, and we think, well, I surely know what God's doing here. I surely know the way that this author is trying to tell me this story. And so we just glean things as we want to glean them. And it is sometimes very confusing, some disjointed story, big stories. And you're just thinking, man, these like generations of these, all these genealogies just kind of break things up and get in the way. You're like, what is going on here? I don't know if you've ever thought that, of just like, man, that is a boring <laughs> section I just read. That seems very strange. Even when you read Matthew and some of the early gospel accounts, all of a sudden you run into this genealogy. Like, what is going on? Like, that just wasted 
a good hour of my life trying to pronounce all those names and figure out what's going on. But there is indeed something very specific for us to see. Some of it is the structure, but some of it is the major themes and thrust of God's redemptive plan. So it is something we need to pay attention to, to understand, to look at. So you have all of these themes. And so one of the major things that also comes out is this seed, this chosen seed. Kind of a strange idea to us. We hear this idea that God is going to save a people. And he's going to do it through this chosen line. So this idea of seed becomes very, very impactful throughout Genesis. In fact, this is brought up several times. It's repeated over and over. And so this idea of seed is another one of those translation difficulties, and it's not necessarily wrong that they're translating it different ways. There is an appropriateness to it, but you do miss what some of the original authors were after, and they're showing some of these thrusts of what they're trying to say by repeating it over and over and saying, do you see this? It's coming down this lineage, and let me frame this for you, and as we read it in our English Bibles, we just can't see it, and so it just kind of disappears into the background. But this word for seed, zera, um, this is a word that's basically uh, being repeated, shown to have this kind of progression throughout the book. It's used 59 times in Genesis and throughout all of the Old Testament, there's 170 uses. So, I mean, this is approaching half of the uses right here. And so you should, if you see a word used that much, you should pay attention a little bit and say, there's something this author is probably trying to tell me about seed. <laughs> There's something about the theme that I might want to pay attention to. So this is where the translations also get a little bit foggy, and as we mentioned, so there's these um, dynamic equivalents, these formal equivalent, and so you get these translations. Some of them are translating thought by thought, and so you miss it entirely in these translations. The message being extremely just you know, general, like this is the, the general thrust of this passage. And so there's a lot of interpretation there. You come to the NIV, it'll be phrase by phrase. You come to something like the ESV, and it'll be much more closer to, like, we want to get each word pretty close, but we're still trying to make it flow in English. Pretty challenging to do. And then you come to something like the NASB or the King James Version, and they're trying to get much closer to, like, what is each word, you know, and it doesn't necessarily mean that they got the meaning right, but at least they're trying to get each word right. But, you know, if you've done any translation, you realize it's hard work to get meaning from one language to another. And so this is something for us to realize that uh, there is real value in, in understanding original languages because anytime you translate, you're, you're missing a few things. And so this is where scholars become very helpful and um, just understanding a little bit that there's things that I miss when I just read my English Bible, but there's things you can also pick up if you hear something like this and know here's a theme. All of a sudden you go back to your English Bible and you could probably pick it out and say, ah, generations of becomes something that clicks in my head. Ah, this, this word zera, uh, and it is often translated as descendants, offspring, seed, and that gets a little harder to pick out because... They're moving back and forth a little bit. So before I even move us into why is this, or how is this working throughout Genesis, I do want to talk about just 
this idea of the seed. What is it? How is it being formulated? So a, a couple important notes on this. So this word for seed, this is obviously um, getting into this idea of who are your children, your descendants, your offspring. How are we tracing this lineage? And so this word, um, when you look at it, can be used both uh, in the same exact designation like the word sheep. It can be plural or singular. This word can be both as well. All of a sudden you come to the New Testament, you're like, oh, the Apostle Paul referenced, like, well, I'm not talking about the plural, I'm talking about the singular. And he interprets one of these usages. And so you see that that actually becomes a fairly significant point theologically. So this idea of seed can at times be used singularly or plural, in the plural. Let's look at Genesis 21:13, and just take a peek at this really quick. Just to give you guys an idea. Someone want to read that? Genesis 21, 13. If you have your Bibles. And someone else turn forward to 28, 14. Someone for 21. Go ahead. So, I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. So, here's a singular. So, this idea, this is that word, seed, offspring. So, this is what's going on here. Jump forward to 28, uh, 14 here. Yeah, so you get the, the bigger picture there of multiple descendants. Same word, same exact usage. Some of them are singular, some of them are plural. So this is one aspect that you have to keep track of with this word. But another one is the word seed refers to this idea of natural descent. And so you start to see this when Abraham might have a kid with someone who's not his wife, like this starts to mess with that idea of natural descent. So it's saying this is actually, it's not an adopted descent, but it's a natural descent. Who is my child, my seed, my descendant? And you start to see this picture that's like, man, that, that, that lineage that you even see like in, in different legal s statuses in our world day and age, like you see the, the royal lineage, you know, they're looking for who is the eldest offspring? Who is the next person in line? They're tracking that pretty carefully. They want to know lineage very carefully, and in a similar way, all of a sudden you say this has a natural descent to it. So within the word Zara, there's also this close connection between this idea of seed, offspring, and what it produces. And this becomes something that's actually uh, an interesting point when we think about what is being carried down. And you'll start to see why this becomes fairly significant to track through Genesis. When you get theologically into the New Testament, all of a sudden this starts to make sense. Uh, Genesis 1.11. Let's take a peek there real quick. This is the same word there. Someone have that? Go ahead. 
So this is, I mean, interesting. Like this is the same word, and there is kind of this natural descent, this ordered progression of the way things come down, and all of a sudden you see like each according to its kind. A tree produces the same kind of tree. Family line produces the same kind of family line. Those who come out of Adam are produced just like Adam, and those from a certain family similarly carry those same types of patterns. Deuteronomy chapter 5, uh, verses 8 through 10, I'll just read this for you. It says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children to the third and fourth generation, or those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You see, there is a sense that this actually has some moral implications within generations. From one generation to the next, these things kind of carry down. And it is a fascinating idea because all of a sudden, the this idea of Promogeniture, that idea that is within the, you know, the, the royal households of, let's take the firstborn of every household and follow that. There's more going on in this lineage of God of saying, I will redeem for myself a people. There's more than just firstborns. There's more than just family line. All of a sudden, God is saying, you are of your father. And sometimes he's referring to moral implications of that and a relationship to God himself because of that. And all of a sudden you're saying, man, this seed language, it was never completely because they were just born in a certain birthright for the people of Israel. There is a relationship that was expected there beyond just here's the firstborn. They get the blessing. They get the inheritance And so it is very important for us to listen here in Genesis and pay attention and say, what is it that God actually said when he said and showed within Genesis when he said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. All the descendants that come out of you are going to be blessed through you. This is the promise that goes back to Genesis 3.15 that says, I will redeem what has gone wrong here. It is through your seed that this is going to come. And you start to see God is carrying this down in a very unusual way, but he is carrying it down through a family, through a line. And so we don't just get to make up the rules of how God does this. God tells us, this is how I'm doing it. So the book of Genesis is centered around a family that shares a special relationship with God. I will be your God. You will be my people. This is of primary importance, and it is going to come down through different lines. And there are, um, I think I skipped this on your handout, but there are different ways that these lineages are shown throughout um, all of um, throughout all of Genesis. And so, one of them, like you have this these linear um, genealogies. So at times it will just be this guy, father, this guy, father, this guy, and it's just trying to show you this is how the thing moves along. And then there's also these segmented generations or genealogies. And so you have both of these listed out in 
Genesis, and it's kind of tracking the way God moves through this family, and he's carrying this seed throughout Genesis. And so at moments, you'll have Adam, and then Cain, Abel, and you recognize like Seth then comes along after this. And what would you expect usually in kind of this normal lineage? Well, you'd say, well, Cain should get the birthright, right? So it breaks down this segmented genealogy here at this point in Genesis. It says, here's the genealogy of Adam, the generations of. And you have Cain who's killed Abel. And so what happens? He basically says, I'm not going to bless the other son. Why? He's still the next in line. Usually that would be the way things happen. But there's some relationship to God that has been broken. And God moves on to the thirdborn. You're like, man, that just kind of messed with all of our expectations within families of how God can carry things down, how God can move things forward. And he goes down and down and down, and all of a sudden he comes to Noah, moves back to the firstborn. The family line continues through Sham, continues down, down, down. All of a sudden you come to Abraham's father, Terah. Kind of natural again. He picks Abraham, and then it goes down from there, and you have Ishmael and Isaac, and it's like, wait, we picked Isaac. Doesn't quite make sense. It kind of messed with things. And then it comes into Jacob, who's a very significant figure in this whole plan of redemption. And you have all these children. And he like, just completely disregards many of the first children, and he goes to Judah and to Joseph. And so you have this picture that God is moving things through this seed through these generations in a way that we don't always quite expect. And there is something that we start to pay attention to, that there is more than just your, more than just your name or your family line or the family you were born into. Because think of all these other generations that split off. God's carrying this seed, and the rest of them are disassociated with God. They're not the people of God. God's kind of just shown this, this line that carries through. And he's very specific about how this is being fulfilled. Uh, I want to look at the way, just look at a few of these spots where we start to see the significance of this for us, of God is making this as a promise, a fulfillment of promise. And he is going to do this, and he's going to do it in a way that we don't always expect. Genesis chapter 17 We'll look at verses 1 through 8. And this is a, a highlight when you think of uh, the entirety of the Pentateuch, but this is also a highlight when you think of the entirety of the redemptive plan of God that is fulfilled in Jesus. And so you have this picture that this is God's redemptive plan starting to work through a specific family. You see everything go very, very wide initially. All of a sudden, God has created things. He's like, you're going to be fruitful and multiply. Things go very, very wide. What happens? Sin comes in. You know, things start to narrow down. In fact, it comes down to Noah where, like, there's not a good thought on anyone's mind. It's evil continually, and it's just one person, and that's the nature of sin, and it broadens out again, but then God has to narrow down back into a specific family again with Abraham. He says, through you... I will bless the nations. 
through you, and this is God's redemptive plan to say, through you, not just your family will be blessed. You're not the end of this all, but it's going to go out to the whole world. This includes the Gentiles, the Jews. This includes the entirety of the earth. It's pretty hard for us to get our mind around, but this is a moment where Abraham is just trusting God, saying, okay, (laughs) if you say so, very, yeah. Right? Which seems strange because you read the account and you're like, not super perfect. <laughs> a few f- issues I can think of, but, uh, and there is something about the relationship he had to God that made him perfect. And if you come back to the New Testament, it's like, by faith, these guys were made righteous. And so there's something about him that God carried his line through. So there's something more than just that seed promise that was very important. And it even highlights it there. They were perfect. And what that means, probably it doesn't come clear till much later in the New Testament, but um, yeah, that is significant, the fact that it's not just my standing in society or my standing in this family, but it's looking very much at his character as well. And his, uh, I would say the next thing, it's kind of implicit is his relationship with God. It's not just vague, abstract perfection. So that, that idea, So there's a couple things there that we're starting to hear. It's like all of these things matter for the children of Abraham. And they've always mattered. And they kind of assumed at one point, like, well, that's just my birthright. <laughs> and God's like, you've missed it. It was never that way, actually, but you've missed it. Um, so let's look at this passage. You know it well. I'm sure you've heard this, but this is the covenant that God made with Abraham. Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. Does someone want to read? This is a little longer. Does someone want to read that? Thank you. Yeah, I mean, that is a overwhelming section of Scripture. And you think of all that God just committed to after all that you've seen in Genesis already, just the vileness that exists within mankind. And God says, I will do this. I will make this promise to you and to the generations after you, to this seed. And you're like, is this a <laughs> confidence that these people are not going to screw it up? There's something more going on here, and there's a pretty substantial promise. As you think of this idea of covenant, I mean, this is kind of coming from the idea of 
someone who has extreme authority making a relationship with someone who has no standing whatsoever. So you think of king, vassal, those, you know, the, the relationships between someone who is like an overlord who's relating just to regular peasants. It's like, that's not an equal relationship by any means. And this is the same type of relationship with God who sets up the whole relationship and says, I will enter into this. Here's the things that I will do to you. And then there's the things you must do on your behalf. And they're not equal. It's not like a normal transaction where it's like, you pay for me this, I give you this good. Uh, This is kind of like, as a king, I'll provide you all of these different things and you will provide me different things. So for you know, God and his people, that's the type of relationship we're talking about. And if you don't do this, usually in a covenant relationship, it's like you do a ceremony where you cut an animal in half or some sort of ratifying process. And you say, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, may what happened to this animal happen to me. Pretty, I mean, like blood oath. Like <laughs> It's pretty serious. You're saying, well, I better count the cost. And what does God do? He puts Abraham to sleep, splits the animal in half, walks through the two halves himself. And it's like, God just took all of it on himself. I mean, if you don't already hear the gospel here in the Old Testament, you're like, God will redeem for himself a people. You see the way that things are moving. And yes, he's picking certain people that have been identified as righteous, but this is the sovereign plan of God. And God is going to push this thing forward till Jesus comes. And it is going to happen. You start to see this at a very uh, just embryonic level here of, wow, God is very committed to this people. And if you're just a general reader, you'd almost wonder why. But this is what he's doing. And there is the sense that we often think, well, because of my position, my status, the things that I do, the things that I say, because of my membership in a church because of the things that I know, maybe that will justify me. Maybe that will count me as part of God's people. This was certainly the problem for the people of Israel. They assumed, well, we're the ones who are righteous. We're the ones who keep the law. The Gentiles are just (laughs) like awful people. They obviously can't come into the presence of God, but us, we're very different. And this is something I'll just note quickly for us. There is this Uh, just rich language of promise that comes to us because of God's work. Um, Matthew chapter 3. Let's just jump forward there real quick. If you have your Bible, Matthew 3. We'll start in verse 4 and read through verse 10. Does someone want to pick that up and read that? Matthew 3, 4 through 10. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, thoughts about that. That's a 
I mean, all of a sudden, he's disrupting this idea of I'm in the family, therefore I get position. King James says, or through the vipers, it says generations. Yeah. Interesting, yeah. An interesting, like, connection even there. Like, you, you think you're from these generations. Um, and they're going back to, like, what they thought they saw in Genesis and the Pentateuch, things that they knew, and they're, he's all of a sudden confronting that in the gospel, saying, that's never been the thing. God could raise up from stones. He will raise up a people to follow him, and he will make this seed carry forth. He's made a promise. He's walked through the two halves of the animals. He's saying, I will redeem for myself a people. But we all of a sudden see, like, there is a promise that God makes, and he says, this is for you and your children. It really is. This is for you. I've given this to you. You can grab hold of it. This is something you are to teach to your children, hold on to, to believe. You are to teach it as you go by the way. You're to teach it to all of your children throughout the entirety of the year constantly. You're to be talking about these things. There's a regularity to the way that you talk about God, but even though the promise is for you, he's saying it doesn't necessarily mean you get the promise. Like there is a relationship to God that seems to be necessary alongside of that. Real quick, Jesse, then I'll come back. Hmm. Well, yeah, it certainly emphasizes the sovereignty of God. I mean, it's hard to get away from God being sovereign. Like, you see that so heavily here. And actually, that's not a bad thing. Like, it actually becomes a very, like, peace-inducing thing to say God is in control. When he gives a promise, you're not wondering, is it going to come to fruition? God's saying he will make it come to fruition. And it's a, there's also this sense that it's available to you. Hold on to it. Yeah, yeah. 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 There is a, a very real sense that God is working through this family line. And there's there's a moral aspect that God's producing in this family line, but there's also a a highly relational one. I will be your God, you will be my people. And so this idea of faith, all of a sudden you hear this in Hebrews come up in this hall of faith. There's not this just abstract idea of like just, you know, moral giants. These guys are just awesome people. In fact, the thing that you start to identify in them is these are people God had selected through this line, but also they're people with... Uh, Yes, they loved God, they obeyed him, but it's really this faith that drives any good work that might come out. Nick, did you have something? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. As as much as that might hurt our feelings, yeah. <laughs> like, hey, could I be one of those rocks? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. 
Well, that God does somehow maintain it through blood, even through very, very broken circumstances. So it's not only blood, though, I think. is So like, there's a sense that we're all related, I suppose. If you wanted to connect it back to Adam, you know, the generations of Adam, and then it carries down. But there is a sense that God allows, um, like, he allows great steadfastness, long-suffering with our sins. So how does he get there? It's certainly not our moral standing. Like, it is God bearing with us. And even when he picks a certain line, it's not just moral you know, like if you were to say, well, that guy was just good. Like, no, I, I don't think that's quite the case. But there is, some rela- there is some relationship to God that actually, we always say this in, you know, like the book of James comes out. It's like we get very confused because like there is a sense that good works do come out when God, like things that represent God come out when God is in your heart. <laughs> and you're like, how do they get there? Well, God has put them there. You know, a right relationship with God is not going to be dead. So, like, all of a sudden, like, if the Spirit's in you, like, fruits are coming out. That tree's alive. <laughs> so, like, there is some senses of, like, that in the Old Testament, too, of, like, they had some trust. Like, you think of Abraham and his faith. Like, no context for this God. Like, you imagine the type of faith to just say, I'll follow you. I don't know exactly what to do. He's coming out of a, you know, polytheistic world. He probably had all sorts of messes in his life, like, figuring out how to follow this God. And God says, Trust me. Like, I mean, the lock actually came later. <laughs> he just said, trust me. So I'm sure there was plenty of sin in his life he just didn't know about. You know. So there's, there's some interesting pieces there. Um, I want to look, and this also helps us even as we think there is um, this same aspect that comes up again and again within the church. There's the corporate nature of the church that God does carry down. I think he still uses families very powerfully. Um, This does not guarantee standing still, but even within Acts when Peter is preaching, he's saying, repent and be baptized. This promise, God's promise, this promise, and he's hearkening back to God's redemptive plan. This is for you and your children. Does that mean all your children will be saved? Well, there's a couple things we already know if we've been studying scripture It's like, yeah, there's a relationship you have to have with God. But the promise is for you and your children, just like it was for Abraham. Um, And one of the things is we hear how he clarified things. I'll jump us to Deuteronomy 9. Um, And this is when God says, I will drive a people out before you. I will give you this land I promised you. And there is this sense that uh, God already is foreseeing the pride in their heart and what's going to happen. It's like, oh, man, we're terrified, but all of a sudden, like, uh, we did it. <laughs> Look at us. We're a big deal now. And he says, do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land where it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. You start to see, he's like, you're not necessarily like this wonderful group of people. You hear this over and over in Scripture. I didn't choose you because of anything in you. I chose you because of my glory. And that is actually pretty hard to trust. But there is a sense God's saying, trust me, have faith in me. So we're... 
we've heard these things, I think, regularly. There's this promise that comes to us through the gospel. There's this language that comes to us in the New Testament of this covenant. And God says, this is an everlasting covenant. Um, This is something that I am going to commit myself to, and I will make it happen. This is the type of God that we have. And we start to hear in um, the New Testament, when we come to these things, uh, that there is something that God has been doing. And this becomes important for us to understand in Genesis, as all of a sudden we come to the New Testament, Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. The Apostle Paul pulls on this, and he actually interprets this, and all of a sudden you see the way he interprets a certain passage of Scripture when he is referring to this seed. It says, Now the promises were made to Abraham, Abraham and to his offspring. And it does not say into offsprings. He's saying there's a difference. Referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. Man, that's like a mind-numbing idea. Like, What did you just say, <laughs> Paul? This would be helpful if you would clarify for me. And you start to see, like, God is carrying down this promise through this seed. And all of a sudden, like, through theology... Like, we have some problems. Our, our theological systems, we recognize, like, we have some problems because our father is Adam. Because you've done this, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And in Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Like, so, Adam, we have this sin problem that's kind of come into the world. And all of a sudden, uh, there's this sense of, like, God is carrying down this whole plan. But there's still this problem. Like, there's just a root of sin and evil and corruption that is within this whole line. That's been clear the whole time. So God's like entering into this whole thing and saying like, well, actually, I didn't choose you because you're righteous, but you needed to be righteous. (laughs) In fact, you need to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. How are we going to get there? And it's like he does some surgery on the whole line. And he says, I'm going to make your father It's going to come out of all this. It's going to become your offspring, which is Christ. All of a sudden, Christ becomes this figure that actually is moved all the way up to the head. It's like absolutely baffling that like this whole genealogy could be flipped on its head and Christ somehow coming in the middle now become like he redeemed the entirety of it. It's like, wow, the... The thing would have worked the way, I mean, you think of all the generations that would have come out of Adam, how full the earth would be right now if not one had walked away, if every one of them had come after Christ, the head. No sin and death. It's like this earth would be overflowing (laughs) with beauty, with goodness, with wonder. This earth would have every inch of it covered with God's Vice regents who are creating, caring for one another, caring for God's creation, making it better. It would have been wonderful. And yet we saw something very different. And here God's entering back in and saying, I am doing reconstruction on this genealogy. And it is incredibly important that Abraham, through all of this, came Christ. Because it reworks the whole thing. 
And so they don't abandon this language of promise. Galatians chapter 4, 28, he says, Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. In fact, you're still part of this promise of God's redemptive plan. You're still part of this thing. It didn't go away. Oftentimes it's very tempting to think like, God tried, it didn't work, and he's just restarted at the New Testament with Jesus. And in fact, this is God's way of redemption. He enters in and he says, no, I'm not doing away with it. In fact, through this whole thing comes Christ, and the whole thing is now redeemed. It references this again. Uh, Romans chapter 9, you can turn to this one. This is a well-known one. Verses 6 through 8. Someone want to read that one? Go ahead. Yeah, God has made this promise and he's saying it's not just your physical descent. Like, it's actually this relationship with God that precedes all of it. And all of a sudden these Gentiles are being grafted in to this. And, you know, the, the people of Israel obviously were getting a little <laughs> testy at this moment saying, wait, 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 we know what this promise was. We know how this was supposed to work. But you enter Christ into the whole situation and God is saying, I am going to bless all of the nations of the earth through you. And it really starts, I mean, you hit Acts, and I mean, this redemptive plan really explodes, and it goes out to every corner of the world. Jerusalem, Judea, to the ends of the earth. I mean, this is the way that God's promise begins to work here. So you start to see, like, there is something going on in God's redemptive plan that is incredibly important for us to see for the gospel, to say God has been doing something. There are these genealogies in Matthew and Luke, and you start to say, wow, this is like really, <laughs> these aren't just like side notes that interrupted the story. There's something that these authors are trying to show me. And especially in Genesis, you start to see there's these genealogies, and there is something that God is trying to show me through this. One, it disrupts our normal expectations of how things are ordered. But even as we look over the next several weeks at different people within this, we're going to stop on some of these different big characters as we've looked at um, just kind of the creation account, getting into Noah, Abraham. We're going to look at Joseph. You know, we, we got these different big spots to stop and say God is doing something very specific in particular. And there's, you know, Lots for us to glean from this, but it is helpful, and I wanted to stop for a little bit just to say, like, let's look at the whole picture of what are these genealogies doing, because it is so easy to fly past this, and yet in the New Testament, all of a sudden, the Apostle Paul picks it up and says, don't miss the significance of the seed, and that's not just for Israel to pick, pay attention to, that's actually for believers. What was significant about my relationship to God? What has always been significant? You're children of your father Abraham, but there's more than just descent in a kind of just normal fashion of that's my eldest child who gets 
the inheritance, but it's saying you have to have a right relationship with God. You see, even the prodigal son illustrates this, the right relationship. You have the elder and the younger son. The younger son squanders it, runs off, and he comes back. And what does he do? He repents. He says, if I could just do anything in your house, that would be better. And the father welcomes him back into fellowship and, in fact, brings him back into his presence. And what happens at the end of the story? The elder son, he's still standing outside the tent. He may have come back in. We don't know. But it actually leaves you in this sense of uncertainty. And that right there is, I mean, it's flipping this whole family relationship topsy-turvy. The eldest son is the one, you get it regardless in the rest of the world. But with God's generations, he's saying there is a right relationship that is expected between me and my people. I will be your God, you will be my people. And that is something that must be there. So genealogy, what does the genealogy of Genesis help me to see? So we've kind of hit on this idea, who do I come from? Like who are my people, where's my story? All of a sudden we start to pick this up. Um, This starts to frame kind of our worldview as believers today even. It was certainly framing their worldview, but it frames our worldview today. All of a sudden we say, well, ultimately I come from God. (laughs) You trace that thing back, it's like these are the generations of, all that comes back up to who made us. God formed me. And that's going to change the way I interact with the world around me. Any thoughts just about that? I mean, as a as the way you see the world interacting with this idea, I mean, that's significantly different than the way other people interact with kind of their story of where do they come from. How does that help as you talk to people in the world? Yeah. Yeah. I have a... a there is a a right expectation of a right relationship with that God. <laughs> it's been defined. And that is like, you're right. Also, like for us, like as I look out at the world, it's like I see people disassociate. It's like you actually belong in right relationship with God. You know, oftentimes they're like, how dare you? But it's like, like for me when I come to them, it's like I've seen it clearly here in Genesis. And I've got quite a bit of confidence after seeing that genealogy. Like it's not like the Israelites were like, they don't belong. Like we should be like, you belong to your father. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah, Derek. Yeah. Mhm. Mm yeah. No, yeah. Yeah, Jesse. Yeah. No, there is certainly like, I mean, there's some rich truths for us to say, I belong to a people. I mean, we're a very individualistic society. God has saved me into a people, his chosen people, his church. I mean, there's corporate language. There is an individual relationship I certainly need with God, one of many, but he's also saving and redeeming his bride, the church. And so, how these things relate together, God has actually kind of told us, like there is a certain relationship you need to have to me individually, but there's also a way that I bless you as part of the church. You belong there. You have identity there. So there are certain things we can certainly pull from understanding where we come from, the genealogies. God works through families. You know, you start to see this is incredibly important to us in the church. Teach your children this. Teach your children how to live. Don't abandon them to the world. God certainly uses that. God can work outside of families through the church. He can redeem people into the church through this body of believers. And all of a sudden, like even as Jesse mentioned, you might not have a family and all of a sudden you have brothers and sisters and fathers. And I mean, the, the Bible uses this. You are adopted. You're children of God. But he doesn't not work through families still, just like he works through families. And so, but there's an aspect of even for my children, you're not saved just because you're my children. You know, you're, you're saved. What is it? Like we saw this, like, yeah, God, I, I want to teach them, like, God is rightly your father. He is your father. Like, trust him, obey him, listen to him, repent of sin when you've turned away from him, but also have faith in him. 
personal faith, relate to him individually. So there is this aspect of God working through this promised plan, this seed, this promise of redemption, and we start to say, oh, I'm entering into that. (laughs) I'm being grafted. I'm the Gentile coming into this world, but I belong here. And that is God's plan. Last thing, and then we'll close in prayer. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for following through that. I hope that is helpful. That is, I mean, there's sometimes you're doing a deep dive into what feels like um, Old Testament history and Israel, Israel's past and all that, but this is for us. This is ours. This, these are things to learn, and the gospel, I hope, gets sweeter as you see these things um, and you understand God's plan of redemption. Let's do pray this morning as we close. Father, we do thank you that you indeed did have a plan to redeem us. Lord, that you did not abandon the world in sin, that you did not turn away. Lord, even at each and every step of the way, when we turned away from you again and again, running after false gods, running after false promises, running after everything but the thing you asked us to do, Lord, you still pressed in and chose to redeem us as your people. Lord, this only leads us to worship you. Help us to reflect on these things, to talk of them, to to understand them, and to teach those who are around us the goodness and wonder of your redemptive plan. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.